I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ines Stepman. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, today we've got a wide-ranging array of topics, as always. Josh is going to kick us off with the breaking news as we record this, that Hunter Biden has pled guilty to a couple of misdemeanors, and we'll get into all the legal wranglings and such in a moment on that. I'll talk a bit about Tony Blinken's embarrassing, and I would argue shameful, trip to China, part of a uh, 1990s call it and they want their foreign policy back effort that the Biden administration is now engaging in with China. After that, Emily will talk a little bit about this whole Joe Rogan, RFK Jr., Peter Hotez blow up over vaccines and debating over them. And uh, last but not least, Inez will take us home talking a bit about Barack Obama and his swipe at Tim Scott. So with that, I'll turn it over to Josh. Okay, so welcome back, everyone. I was obviously away last week in Armenia, of all places. I will have something to say on that in final thoughts. But for present purposes, something much more pressing and perhaps of uh, more interest for an American audience, which is that we are recording this on Tuesday, June 20th, in just the immediate aftermath, really just a few hours after the news has broken that Hunter Biden is pleading guilty to two federal tax charges. If you recall, he has been under federal investigation for, at a bare minimum, tax and gun-related charges for a while now. We actually had an IRS whistleblower who kind of came to the fore in recent months who accused the federal government of deliberately obfuscating and slow-walking this, this investigation. And we now have the semblance, the semblance that is of a result, although the feds are telling us that this investigation is still ongoing. But what we know right now is that Hunter Biden is pleading guilty to two tax charges. He apparently did not pay his federal income tax, either partially or perhaps wholly, for multiple years, I think roughly 2017 and 2018. And there was, there's also a gun charge floating around. The details of this actually pertain to kind of a memoir or a, or a book that Hunter Biden put out a few years ago where he basically said during a, a period of time that he didn't go more than 15 minutes without doing crack cocaine, it turns out that he purchased a handgun during that time. Um, as anyone who has purchased a firearm, and including yours truly, can tell you when you fill out that FFL, that federal form, you have to attest that you are not currently on various illicit drugs. So the Fed started investigating him because of his own stupidity, that is, uh, for just admitting it, um, this gun crime as well. So he he has admitted guilt in, in the gun crime, but he is not pleading guilty to it. He looks like he is going to avoid jail time at the moment. The confines of the plea deal are roughly, I think it's if you kind of do your probation service and you don't violate it, then the feds will agree in kind of quid pro quo fashion. You know, funny how the Bidens always have these quid pro quo agreements, that is. Uh, the feds will basically agree to not prosecute for the gun crime. And if I'm not mistaken, within two to three years, uh, the feds are basically telling Hunter that his record will be wiped clean. So. What does all that mean? Well, it kind of reeks of kind of getting Al Capone on tax charges to an extent. I mean, there's like a slight whiff of that. The analogy only goes so far here, but he's getting an incredibly sweetheart deal, Hunter Biden is. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, you know, if his last name wasn't Biden, from my perspective, I mean, there's a very, very good chance that this would end with serving serious jail time. And he, it looks like he is not going to serve any jail time, that he's just going to have a probation agreement. You kind of have to think 
that the way this probably played out, if you think about kind of, um, you know, what a lot of us like to call the Biden crime family, you know, the, the Don Corleone of the family, Joe Biden, like picking up the phone and calling his son Hunter and saying, oh, Hunter, you know, why don't you just do this? You're not going to go to jail. It'll, it'll make all of our troubles go away. Be a good old boy. Serve daddy well. That, that's kind of like along the lines of the conversation that I would like to think or at least would like to imagine as to kind of how this went down there. A few other things to note. Um, my immediate takeaway here, well, I, I guess I had two immediate takeaways. My first immediate takeaway of the news that broke just this morning that we are recording, again, this is just in the aftermath of the Hunter Biden in, in, in federal uh, federal guilty plea news. My very first reaction is that it, it is incumbent upon us to not let this tax guilty plea kind of distract from the recent Chuck Grassley Form FD-1023 news pertaining to um, Mikola Zolchevsky, and uh, the, who is the founder of Risma, and the and the seventeen phone calls were pertaining to millions and millions of dollars allegedly flowing into the the coffers of of, of Hunter and Joe Biden. So uh, that is the issue right now, especially. I mean, it is doubly and triply the issue because the U.S. obviously, as of this time, is still involved very, very heavily in a war in Ukraine that shows no signs of, of ending anytime soon. So, you know, these allegations pertaining to Biden and, and Hunter and obviously Joe, who was the Obama point man in Ukraine, got the prosecutor, Victor Shokin, fired. I mean, how corrupt is this family? What are the implications for current U.S. foreign policy when it comes to this conflict in Ukraine? I mean, this is deeply, deeply pressing stuff for the national interest. And I think it is totally incumbent upon us to not lose sight of that and let this kind of small ball, you know, attempt to distract us. I mean, we can't kind of fall for the, for the shiny object. Let's keep our eye on the prize here as it pertains to Chuck Grassley, Jim Comer in the House. Obviously, Chris Ray and the FBI are trying to obstruct that. And we'll see how that ultimately works out. But I think those of us in kind of the chattering class definitely need to keep our eyes firmly set on that. My other takeaway and then I'll kind of throw it open to you guys. My other takeaway is you do have to wonder, it kind of takes me back to a column I wrote back in January where I kind of openly wondered whether the deep state was trying to come after Joe Biden. And that was at the time of, of the Biden classified documents scandal at the Chinese Communist Party funded Penn Center in Washington, D.C. At the time, it looked like maybe some of the deep state were trying to kind of get Biden aside before he formally announced for reelection to kind of get Gavin Newsom or someone else in there. Maybe there's maybe maybe there's some element of that here. Biden obviously has in that uh, intermittent time he has announced, but he looks terrible. He's falling down. I mean, he's saying God save the queen at totally inappropriate moments, to put it mildly here. So I wonder if there's an element of that here going on as well. But I filibustered for long enough, so I'm curious for all of your thoughts. Well, I was going to say Josh's filibuster was really helpful because there's so many details in this story, not unlike the documents case and not unlike, you know, the, these uh, broader issues of the, the various investigations that are going with various Biden family members um, in general. But um, one thing I think is interesting is that Jonathan Turley, uh, less than a year ago, predicted the Hunter Biden investigations would end in, quote, controlled demolition. And I think what we've seen over just the last couple of hours as we're processing this looks a whole lot like controlled demolition, especially when you consider the timing, especially when you consider um, everything that's transpired in recent weeks. The FBI is sort of desperately uh, clinging to its last shreds of credibility. Uh, you have all of these conversations about the rule of law and the Trump charges, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so I think that's what this looks like. It's right as the campaign is heating up. Um, a lot of this stuff has been out in the open for a very long time. These investigations have been going for ongoing for a long time. So I think the timing is incredibly interesting and fits the controlled demolition narrative uh, very well. Uh, then the, the last thing I would say is uh, Sagar and Jetty made a really, really good point. And I'm just going to pull it up right here so that I can read it in full. Um, his quick reaction to this was really helpful. It was, imagine if a normal citizen was a years-long drug addict who lied on a gun form, failed to pay $2 million in taxes, got a damn donor slash Hollywood lawyer to pay it for you, had multiple corrupt foreign business dealings, they'd be in jail yesterday. Hunter Biden is going free. Super, super important perspective to zoom out from 30,000 feet and just think, we're being lectured on the rule of law by the Biden administration, and this is what it looks like um, when you actually sort of get some distance from it and can see uh, with, with clarity exactly what's going on here. So uh, let me address Josh's maybe, I guess, last or penultimate point about, you know, were they trying to, were they being the regime trying to set Joe Biden up to fall? Uh, let's note, first of all, that we've had no update on the Biden documents case, interestingly. Uh, but I would say that the investigations of Hunter and the investigations of Joe, I think, represent the feature, not a bug, of the Biden family, which is that they are totally compromised and transparently compromised. And consequently, the regime views that as a merit to Joe Biden. They have maximum leverage over the Biden family. And so to the extent the Biden administration were to ever step out of line, the, the regime would have full power to get him to come back in accord with whatever the regime wants. So they will always have the option, of course, to pull the plug if and when they want to. But by the same token, Biden is totally pliable and totally bendable to their whims. Setting all that aside, you know, I've seen lawyers speculating about this, how this is obviously the sweetheart deal of all sweetheart deals. There's this pretrial diversion agreement, which I understand uh, is very uncommon in cases like this. We know that anyone but Hunter Biden would not be treated this way. But I think the importance of this in part is, A, yes, it's a false effort and totally disingenuous effort by the Justice Department and FBI to claim that, look, you know, we even prosecute the Bidens. Uh, but the fact that they get these wrist slap uh, throwaway charges on these issues buries the far deeper and more grave issues for national security and including the conduct that Hunter Biden engaged in and the conduct that implicates Joe Biden and other Biden family members as well. And the key is, I think, that this still is an ongoing investigation, so-called, according to the statement from the prosecutor, David Weiss. So if it's an ongoing investigation, then can we not see anything around it? Are they still going to gameplay with the 1023 and other documents that uh, House Republicans have called for being brought forth? And by the way, we know that with the Clinton Foundation investigation, when that ended, the FBI returned evidence or destroyed evidence. What Hunter Biden and other Biden family evidence is ultimately going to be destroyed after this. So, you know, a few other questions I'd briefly ask, and these are not exactly rhetorical questions, but sort of rhetorical, are what didn't get investigated? What did the FBI and DOJ find that they felt they needed to bury uh, in probing Hunter Biden and the Biden family? And then how soon are we going to have more indictments against Donald Trump after this while nothing happens with the Biden special counsel? Uh, all open questions that I think maybe we'll get some answers to in the coming weeks. Yeah, I, I agree with Ben that the most important aspect of this is the 
not not I mean we've said over and over again this double standard of justice is very dangerous but um, the the laying out the different ways in which law enforcement and the FBI have handled these different cases is well worth the time of comparing this step by step to what's laid out in the Durham report I think is worth the time and and consequently I think that's the sort of distraction element of this and I think the narrative from the left will be um, you know, all about Hunter Biden and his personal failings, right? It'll it'll be about the poor drug addicted son um, of of a uh, you know an old political family, and that that is a sympathetic narrative to a lot of Americans because it's it's not a, a foreign problem for many many families. But that's that is going to be the cover. It's going to be what they they run, and it's going to be in, you know looking into this or talking about this in a broader way about actual corruption charges against Joe Biden, for example, as opposed to his son. Um, you know, looking into this as a more serious political scandal, it's going to be shoved aside under the the bracket. You know, Hunter Biden was a bit of a screw up. He was, you know, he was on drugs. He was. You know, this is a, a sort of family story that it's indecent to look into and indecent to take, you know, politically seriously or use as political fodder. That's going to be the response, and I think it's really important that we be prepared to, in both those ways, one to tie this into. Um, actually, Joe Biden, as opposed to Hunter, not these particular charges, obviously, which is why I think, as as Josh said, it's it's a distraction. But but um, the but the Grassley investigation, these seventeen tapes, right? Um, the, these allegations of actual bribery um, and and influence peddling directly from Joe Biden, and not to be distracted by this. Um, but also to to point out again and again that the FBI um, is is compromised in terms of, of the, the political standard they're applying to these investigations being very, very different depending on whether your last name is Trump or Biden. Um, and I think that that's, those are both points that are well worth not getting distracted from. So on that note, I will keep the focus right there because in much of the coverage of this attempted detente that the Biden administration is pursuing with respect to communist China, Totally missing, not in evidence in the reporting, is taking into account of the Biden family's business dealings with China, business dealings in air quotes, dealings with Chinese Communist Party linked entities. And I want to make sure that there's an emphasis on that because you can't look at virtually any major national security or foreign policy issue and not look as well at who the Biden family was dealing with and on what, what grounds while he was vice president and then subsequently and then what the ultimate policy objectives are and the tactics towards those objectives. So with that, uh, we know that over this past weekend, the Biden administration led by Tony Blinken engaged in the first kind of high level talks in mainland China of their kind since 2018. And it's important to set the stage for this meeting. Of course, the Chinese Communist Party did nothing to merit Tony Blinken going over to China to visit with his counterpart, and then with Xi Jinping. But a few things happened on the eve of this meeting. First of all, Blinken was preceded by a number of U.S. finance and tech leaders, uh, all basically calling for renewing trade and economic engagement and such. And you have you better believe that those leaders went with the imprimatur of the Biden administration as well. There were new revelations about the spy balloon, the spy balloons that flew over the U.S. And by the way, of course, this was what scuttled the prior meeting that Blinken was planning to have with his Chinese counterparts, uh, including the fact that we now know that they were able to gather intelligence from several sensitive American military sites, despite the Biden administration's efforts to block those balloons from uh, gathering that information. 
Beyond that, President Biden said on the eve of these meetings to show you the kind of bending over backwards that the administration was engaging in, that the spy balloon incident, so-called, was more embarrassing for Beijing than it was intentional. Here's a direct quote from Joe Biden. I don't think the leadership knew where it was and knew what it was in it, what was in it, and knew what was going on, he told reporters. It was, I think, it was more embarrassing than it was intentional. And so I'm hoping that over the next several months, I'll be meeting with Xi again and talking about legitimate differences we have, but also how there's areas we can get along. Exact same kind of rhetoric and approach that we've seen from every single president post-Nixon and up to the point of President Trump stopped. We had one interregnum, and now we're right back at it with Joe Biden again. We also had this information about China and Cuba working to develop these eavesdropping, a collection uh, sites, facilities uh, in Cuba. And as well, there's now new reporting to suggest that there's a joint military training facility on the island that's being discussed, obviously right in our backyard. And beyond that, the Biden administration has also delayed punitive economic measures against China and played down their intelligence gathering uh, precisely to avoid jeopardizing these talks. So with that loud throat clearing and long throat clearing, then we had these meetings. And what happened from the start to finish, from the optics to the substance of these meetings, this was an embarrassing set of days for America. First, Tony Blinken was received by a low-level official on the tarmac in China. Then he was apparently berated and browbeaten uh, by his counterpart. And then Xi Jinping held a meeting seated at the head of the table, of course, for optics purposes. And essentially, China blamed everything in terms of the downgrading of a relationship on the U.S., uh, we don't have to go through all of the direct quotes, but essentially what China said was that the U.S. was the aggressor. The U.S. needs to respect Chinese interests. Respect was the word uh, in the readouts. Um, China's foreign ministry said in one write-up that it's necessary for the U.S. to make a choice between dialogue or confrontation, cooperation or conflict. Blame the U.S.'s side's erroneous perception of China leading to incorrect policies toward China for the current low point, demanded that the U.S. stop hyping up the China threat theory and on and on. Uh, meanwhile, and, and also, by the way, urged the U.S. to recalibrate its Indo-Pacific strategy before this year's APEC summit if Washington wants to build up healthy interactions with Beijing. And of course, the Biden administration just took it and essentially said, we're going to engage in competition where it's merited and cooperation also where it's merited. Uh, they were so tepid in their response. Of course, they said, maybe the highlight of this, we do not support Taiwan independence. The U.S. does not seek a Cold War and does not want to change the Chinese system. Even on fentanyl, the Biden administration said that sometimes accidentally uh, opiates come in from China through Mexico and get into the U.S. So he, there was a, this was a direct quote in a conversation on, I believe, CBS News. Uh, the question to Blinken was, I've had lawmakers in the U.S. say this is done intentionally by the Chinese state, flooding us with fentanyl. Do you believe that? Blinken responded, so all I can tell you is this. We've seen cooperation from them in the past, and that's made it different. That halted more or less over the last few years. They've had, they have issues that they've raised to try to explain why they're not doing as much as they can. So the key takeaways here, in my view, that ought to be discussed beyond the fact that this is a complete reversion to the policy of integration and engagement that got us into this mess with China in the first place over the decades is one, to what extent did the Biden family's dealings lead to this agenda, and why isn't that even being discussed? And then number two, what is this setting up going into 2024 that the Biden administration is so intent, so hell-bent on returning to the status quo of engagement, accommodation, and integration with China? Last but not least, their entire purpose, the Biden administration's stated claim of the purpose of these meetings was to open up military to military communications again. They walked out of those meetings without any such 
uh, cooperation from China. But by the same token, China said that the Biden administration agreed to several things that China want, uh, unstated. That's where we are today. I think it's a disastrous circumstance. And I'd be interested to hear your takeaways on where this relationship is going and what the dangers are. Well, this, so, this, um, two, okay, things, okay. No, go ahead. Um, two things stood out to me really uh, on this. One is that it's it's an attempt to ratchet down tensions without actually addressing any of the underlying, um, you know, on any of the underlying issues between the U.S. and China that have been causing the issues. And that sounds very much like, you know, um, it, it goes along with generally sort of the Obama approach to foreign policy largely, right, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> what is it, uh, speak softly, carry a large stick, except it's the opposite. It's just sort of speak um and, and eh, actually i'm, I'm gonna revise that because there's, there's um let's leave the obama legacy aside because I, I actually have some something else to say about that but but in any case um this this is ratcheting down those tensions um without actually demanding anything in return and that's very dangerous that kind of appeasement and is is very inviting um to on the on the global stage and i, I think that's like if, if we're going to ratchet down tensions we should be have something to show for it especially what ben just said at the end you walk out of these meetings without even the most basic of things, right? The reason that those military communications are important is to avoid accidents that might start World War III. Um, and the fact that we can't even in, uh, you know, get reciprocity on something that basic from Beijing is worth like, uh, it, it just shows that the tensions really are that bad, even though the Biden administration clearly wants to downplay them. Um, the second thing that I noticed about these talks is the fact that COVID was never mentioned, right? Especially as we're seeing uh, more and more uh, you know, plausible information coming out that that point uh, more and more excessively to the potential for this to be the uh, com that COVID came out of this lab, that it was possibly uh, a kind of, of weaponization program of, of these COVID viruses. Yes, conducted by China, but then of course funded by um, funded by the U.S. government, uh, and and in particular some of those grants doled out by Anthony Fauci himself. And I think one of the great tragedies of this, right, um, is that the U.S. response and the domestic fight over how we should have responded to COVID, all legitimate fight, by the way, but that has superseded, in a way, um, the clear blame that could have been laid on China. Uh, I think this has been, this is something that Donald Trump, I think, frankly, screwed up. It would have been a great opportunity for him to double down on, on the importance of bringing certain critical national security manufacturing home. It would have been a great opportunity for him to, to really change um, the tone on China, which is something he was trying to do in his primary and, 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 um, and in his presidential run. And then during his four years, he didn't do it over this opportunity of COVID. And I think then all of the fights over domestically over like how we should deal with COVID made the issue so that it was very difficult within the U.S. There was basically no sort of political constituency for pointing directly at China and saying you caused probably 10 million deaths right in, in the world. Um, and And the fact that we are not even mentioning it and we just want to forget that this happened that not only millions of lives lost but trillions of dollars uh, of economic loss that's happened all over the world and the fact that the us doesn't even sort of feel strong enough to bring up the fact uh that that um it's, it's likely that this virus came from a lab in china to me is is a very damning uh sort of statement on how weak the posture of the us is vis-a-vis -vis china Super quick, because we're basically running out of time here. I will only add that I think the optics of a U.S. Secretary of State announcing on Chinese sovereign soil that it is still the position of the United States that we are not interested in recognizing Taiwan 
is very bad. And I am not calling for the U.S. to, as of right now, recognize Taiwan, because given the current state of tensions, that would be a very imprudent idea. But the, just the sheer optics, um, you know, it's kind of an overwrought analogy, but I do think that this is at least somewhat of an appropriate time to kind of whip out the old Neville Chamberlain card. Again, I don't think that the U.S. should be kind of announcing kind of recognition of Taiwan. That, that's a recipe for utter disaster on the global stage right now. But uh, that looked really bad. And I just wanted to say that. Yeah, my, my point is quickly and something in this said about appeasement. Just look at the way that the people who are congratulatory of Blinken and the Biden administration stands towards China approach Ukraine and say that any inch of Ukrainian territory being seized by Putin is tantamount to appeasement and the United States cannot afford appeasement on the global stage. I actually agree with that. I think you, know, you, you, you can't. Um, in every case, and we may, you know, end up in this proxy war where where there is there are gains um, that that Putin gets out of it for being tragically willing to send so many of his own people to their deaths um, for this war and for this invasion. But in China, you know, appeasement is just diplomatic and tactful and, and masterful, just a, a master stroke of diplomacy from Blinken. It's ridiculous, and it is putting us in a really dangerous situation. With that, let's uh, go to Inez to talk, move from the Biden administration to former President Obama's remarks. Yeah, I'm, you know, so Obama has hit out at uh, Tim Scott and Republicans in general, especially, you know, black Republicans. Um, this wouldn't warrant too much, uh, too much note, except for the framing that I think I'd like to give it and then kick it back out to you three to say, uh, see whether you agree with me that this this kind of mentality from the Republican Party is a real problem. But just to, to quote, start this off with what Obama actually said, he said, quote, there may be there may come a time where there's somebody in the Republican Party that is more serious about actually addressing some of the deep inequality that still exists in our society that tracks race and is a consequence of our racial history. And if that happens, I think that would be fantastic. I haven't yet seen it. Um, so and, and then Scott's response to this was largely to say, um, we believe in equality of opportunity. We like HBCUs. Uh, we're going to give them more money, opportunity zones, you know. That's then that's that I think that exchange has been a large part of the problem. First on the on the Obama side, uh, it's it's a, a perfect encapsulation of what the Obama presidency actually did to racial relations in the United States, which is launder a quite radical um, racial view that that is really uh, let's call it the 1619 view of of America and racial relations in America uh, into a very moderate sounding package. So he always manages to come off sounding reasonable um, in terms of the language he uses, even though the ideas that he's actually bringing into the mainstream are incredibly radical. Um, I think it's worth pointing that out because, uh, you know, it's it's been a while since the Obama presidency. So it's easy to forget uh, that, that a lot of this kind of real, um, again, racial radicalism uh, entered the political mainstream with Obama's election um, and and with the way that he talks about race. Um, and then on this on the flip side, you know, Senator Scott's response for the for the Republican Party is really kind of to sidestep the question to talk about progress and how much progress we've made, and then point to a few of these sort of uh, uh, policies that the Republican Party likes to hold up as a, a sort of totem totem shield against um, the the allegation of racism in, in a very sort of uh, defensive posture. Um, and not to mention some of these policies are good, right? School choice is often used as, as that kind of racial sort of uh, shield um, policy and school choice is a great policy that I'm very much, very much behind. Some of these policies are bad policies like um, federal funding for HBCUs, which are, are just 
they're really bad universities. They have really bad graduation numbers and everything else uh, with the exception of Howard University. So there's not really any purpose as to why the Republican Party continues to, to wave the flag around of HBCUs. But those, those policies aside, um, I think it's the wrong mentality and it, it represents something uh, that's wrong about the Republican mentality when, when people talk about uh, issues of race. It's not to strongly defend uh, the American way of life to say, yes, that America, you know, entered this world with, with slavery still intact in this country, but in fact has been a, a uh, has, has been a beacon of freedom. Um, and that the remarkable thing about America is, is not the fact that slavery existed or that racism existed in this country, um, but, but the, the society and the ideals uh, of, of uh, the fundamental equality between human beings, that's remarkable in the history of the world, not the fact that, you know, there was was uh, injustice, slavery, and racism. That that has been the history of of every single country in the history of the world. Um, so th there's no strong response to that, and I think that increasingly that's going to be a problem, as we see that um, that the structure of especially the point post '90s civil rights uh, sort of regime, both the legal regime and the cultural regime that's come out of it in the private sector, uh, have emerged as a really important uh, sort of battle lines uh, between the left and the right. And the fact that the Republican Party is still not willing to acknowledge it, and not a single Republican elected official, so far as I can tell, for example, has even suggested that we might want to. Um, you know, reform certain aspects, especially of the, the 90s reforms, the Civil Rights Act. Nobody stepped out to say anything about that that is actually an elected official. Um, I think that reflects the kind of cowardice and this kind of rote response where we point to a litany of policies, again, some of them good, some of them bad, um, instead of directly refuting the lie about America that is coming from the heart of the left on, on these racial issues. Um, and just as a, a one final point to throw into this discussion, um, there there was this this uh, there was a settlement recently this week uh, for Shannon Phillips two point uh, twenty five point six million dollar settlement um, for the white employee of Starbucks who claimed she was fired because she was white. This is after one of those viral incidents um, in in which uh, I, I think it was black customers were asked to leave or not use the restroom or something like that, and it was. Um, framed as a racial incident online, and then Starbucks fired their white employee because of it. Um, turned out, of course, in many such cases, that that, that uh, video was completely um, misleading in terms of representing what actually happened. Um, nevertheless, so now this woman has has been able to, to lodge a $26 million settlement uh, against Starbucks, I think, uh, for racial discrimination because she was white. And I think that that's probably um a, a indication of of at least a possible avenue for the right to go down to vigorously enforce um uh, the principle of color blindness which is exactly the opposite to the extent that you know obama wants to talk about the systemic racism that's still and prejudice that exists in america i think it's exactly the opposite there's not a single private company let alone the government uh, there's not a single private major company in america that isn't bending over backwards to hire uh, racial minorities, usually over, um, you know, white straight men, right? Uh, the worst type of employee. Um, and, and increasingly, if the right is too cowardly to talk about that, um, we're going to miss a huge, I think, subterranean force in American politics that that is going to be important. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll kick it back out to you guys. So the irony is that the last still existing form of actual systemic sweeping pan-institutional racism in, in America actually stands on the potential precipice of being legally eradicated, possibly not in practice eradicated. But I, I speak, of course, of, of 
affirmative action, especially in higher education admissions. There are two cases that are coming down really any day now um, from Harvard and the, and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where, you know, I think many people, including myself, were semi-confidently predicting the court would come out the right way on this. I think a lot of us are having possibly some some jitters after the recent very disappointing ruling out of the, out of Alabama in the Voting Rights Act Section 2 redistricting case. I guess we'll see what happens there. But, you know, I mean, that in as it is obviously like the like like the grand irony of this, right, is that the people who who keep on moaning and moaning, uh, you know, about how America is just this awful, systemically racist place tend to be the largest boosters of the actual institution that continually engages in in systemic racism. And that, that kind of gets, a of course, a kind of the broader difference between actual equality under law and Ibram X. Kennedy's style, intersectionality, equity, all of that. Look, when uh, I am just so sick at this point of these idiots who just have the the temerity to call America like this, this vile, gross. I, I mean, how many years can they keep this grift up? I, I mean, I'm serious at this point. I mean, like in the aftermath of, you know, of St. George Floyd, the great martyr, you know, being killed in May of 2020 and the violence that kind of ripped through our cities in 2020. I get that there was like some time for kind of a national racial reconciliation moment, whatever. But how how long are they going to keep this shtick up? I mean, it's seriously, it's get, it's getting just so tiresome at this point. And Inez's point is obviously correct. The United States is is not at all, not at all unique in having once had the immoral abomination of chattel slavery, but it is unique that we risk dissolving this entire experiment in ordered liberty. Obviously, I speak of Lincoln's prosecution of the Civil War. We, we risk losing it all to better align the practice day-to-day -day America with its ideals, and that is worth celebrating. I think Inez is right to point to how much we forget what accelerated under Barack Obama and um, a lot of that being intentional, um, sort of the way he handled that question wouldn't be easy, you know, whether he was sort of ideologically uh, aligned with us or not. Uh, you know, being in his position was never going to be easy, but it was, it was so cynical and calculating and it just, it, it rocketed us back um, years and it was, set up the moment of 2016 it set up the moment of 2020 so it's really you know it's, it's worth remembering and i feel like that is clarified in this very 2023 back and forth between obama and scott um where you have tim scott sort of reverting um you have obama being you know, doing exactly what obama does and then tim scott um you know not realizing how many times this has failed um, as a rebuttal to Barack Obama. Uh, it, it, this has failed over and over and over and over and over and over and over again as a rebuttal to Barack Obama for a good reason, um, which is that it's not adequate. And, uh, you know, he's, he's running a 2012 candidacy. We've said that many, many times, um, but it's, it's not adequate. And it's, it's not adequately, I think, conservative at this point either. Yeah, uh, Broadway, Barack Obama is was and always will be a leftist ideologue and leftist ideologues believe in pitting ourselves against each other on any of a number of grounds perhaps chief among them race and then beyond that class and a whole slew and a whole slew of other identities as well and so this is of a piece with that what i do stepping aside for a moment from the you know the substantive arguments that have been made which are which are all spot on 
I always ask, why would he interject when he talks in a big public forum and says something like this? There's a reason for it. He's spoken out you know, only on a handful of other issues, really, in recent years, including, by the way, among them, misinformation and disinformation, which lets me, which leads me to believe that I'm right to be pursuing that topic over and over again, because if he's focused on censorship, then you can bet the entire regime is. But setting that aside for a moment, you know, why is he making this comment? Is it because he wants people like us all getting worked up about it and talking about it? Is it because he actually fears and his party fears what they see in the polls about minorities potentially leaving the Democrat Party? Does he believe there's some benefit potentially in some jujitsu to elevating the likes of Tim Scott and maybe to a lesser degree, Nikki Haley as well? I'm not sure, but I always look at this from the cynical political perspective when it comes to anything related to Barack Obama uh, over the substance. And then last but not least, there's always working in the background uh, that long shot potential run for Michelle Obama as well. So whenever he talks, you also have to consider that maybe he might be speaking for his wife, too. Um, and with that, I'll go back to Emily. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, there was a, a pretty big dust up and, uh, you know, it may seem like just a sort of Twitter controversy, except for that $100,000 uh, to charity were on the line between Joe Rogan, Peter Hotez, um, Mark Cuban got involved. Um, RFK Jr. is involved in all of this. And, and the basic situation is that Vice wrote an article about RFK Jr.'s recent appearance on the Joe Rogan experience and said that Spotify has given up on trying to correct vaccine disinformation on Joe Rogan's podcast, which is probably one of their most popular, if not their most popular podcast, period. Um, Peter Hotez, who is the uh, bespectacled uh, bow tie, lab coat wearing doctor you surely recognize from the many cable news segments uh, that you've been glued to, you the, the viewer and the listener, uh, over the last several years during COVID, who um, Matt Taibbi's website just produced an amazing video about all of his sort of self-contradictions over the, co the COVID years and the sort of um, glistening example of expertise in 2023, capital E expertise in 2023 that Peter Hotez is. And um, they, they start talking about all of this on RFK Jr.'s appearance and Vice writes, writes an article about how it's filled with vaccine disinformation. Peter Hotez reacts to it um, and you know basically says he's been getting attacked based on the segment, blah, blah, blah. Rogan comes back and says, you get on my podcast and debate RFK Jr. with no time limit. I will donate $100,000 to a charity of your choice. And Hotez then... Uh, goes through this like very online like mental breakdown uh, as I see it where he's um, you know talking to Mehdi Hassan and all these other sort of fans of his um, who are saying don't do it you don't have to debate you know we don't I think he said at one point like scientists aren't accustomed to debate or like we don't do things with debates um, I'm paraphrasing but something to that extent and basically uh, I think this was summed up well in a headline by one of my colleagues, Edita Duffy at The Federalist. Uh, they think they're too good to debate um, critics or skeptics of vaccines. And you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure a lot of us are in the same camp where we see vaccines as like an incredible technology that has been used to, to save many, many lives um, over the last century and, and has been, of course, for good. But when you planted the seeds of doubt, uh, we, as average citizens, necessarily have to rely on those experts um, for things like vaccines. We can't be expected to know all the ins and outs of, uh, you know, 
in biology and the the complex medical science that goes into these questions. Um, and when you've planted those seeds of doubt, obviously people like RFK Jr. are going to appeal to sort of uh, normal guys like uh, Joe Rogan and you know the listeners that are represented by Joe Rogan. So uh, I thought this is worth talking about specifically because so many people uh, coalesced around, you know, so many other experts coalesced around Hotez, who has been I think really pretty clearly discredited and acted as though no, you know, this is not just about Joe Rogan, but they're basically saying no, we're we're not debating this anymore, and um, that's where you know if, if RFK Jr.'s candidacy have has legs um, and maybe even pushes Joe Biden to debate, it's because of this incredible hubris and arrogance that uh, they continue to not get the hint is actually counterproductive to them and to all of us. So with that, I'll open it up to the group. Yeah, um, I'll jump in here. One, this really reminds me of of uh, that moment in the New York Times, right? Um, right after the election of 2016, after they were so incredibly wrong. I think their little tracker gave Hillary, what, a 90, 98, 99% chance of winning or something like that. Um, there was this brief moment in time where they, they started to think and consider, okay, how can we learn more about this uh, this strange creature in the zoo, the Trump voter, right? And of course, it was the most condescending way to do it possible, but still, they were like, they were wondering what they had missed, right? Um, and then immediately came in the excuse, no, it was Russia, right? Russia with, you know, $100,000 of, of stupid Facebook ads, right? That's the reason that Hillary lost. Uh, we don't need to understand uh, this 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 mythical Trump voter doesn't actually exist. It was manipulated um, by by Russia, and the other excuse was always racism, right? These these uh, th these knuckle dragging groups are just so racist they couldn't you know they couldn't see past their own racism, and that's 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 the, that's the, the beginning and the end of the appeal of Trump. Um, the reason it reminds me of those things is like it's it's the doubling down of gatekeepers, right? Uh, on institutional trust they refuse to acknowledge uh that they've lost right or to the extent that they acknowledge that they've lost that trust they find some exterior explanation instead of actually doing the work of looking at why um so many millions of americans now find something that rfk jr says about vaccines with which prior to covid uh was a very small minority of americans found plausible at all why is it that they can no longer wave the flag and say, but experts say, right? instead of actually doing some of the, the interest perspective work that would require a beating or about a beating experts say have taken, um, not just in the last couple of years with regard to COVID, but if you stand it out to non-medical issues on virtually every sort of topic of, of American importance um, in the last, you know, five to 10 years, experts have taken an incredible L on just about every one of, of the important topics, right? Um, instead of actually looking at the failures of our elites and our institutions, um, such that they have so devastatingly lost the trust of the average American, they're saying it's, you know, it's misinformation, it's a watch spinning in front of people's eyes, we don't need to debate somebody Right. No, actually, the only way out of this, which I, I very much doubt is going to happen, but I, I'll you know sort of throw it out as free advice anyway. The only way out of this and the only way to rebuild trust is to actually do the work. Um, and actually, I want to give uh, kudos to Brianna Joy Gray um, for, for uh, actually, for example, interviewing RFK Jr., giving him a tough interview on this question. But she, she made a great Twitter thread 
um, basically saying, no, uh, we have to, we can't just say we can't debate these people. We have to go and, and read the studies and, and do the work and actually like have an open-minded debate. We can no longer rely on sort of relying on the institutional experts to just throw down that card and say, we're the experts, we know the best because that card is dead and gone in American public life uh, and not just with regard to this particular issue. So I, ha I haven't followed this extremely closely, but I do think that it's telling the level of public outcry that this seemingly small kerfuffle has reached. I mean, there truly are certain sacred cows. There truly are certain kind of third rail topics in the public discourse that you simply are not allowed to touch. And yet, uh, kind of paradoxically, when you do touch them, you are able to kind of trigger kind of the sentiments of the people you are you're able to kind of tug at their heartstrings in kind of an emotional way because the people know that you are not supposed to talk about these things so when it comes to the vaccines in in particular you know i think if you look here in florida you know joseph ladapo is our state surgeon state surgeon general uh governor DeSantis hired him away from ucla in california maybe a year and a half two years ago or so and, you know, he I mean, he's made a ton of headlines. People despise him because of what he has said about the mRNA vaccines kind of discouraging, um, you know, 18 to 29 year old males in particular, perhaps from from getting the mRNA vaccine. So, look, uh, I, again, the left tries to have it both ways. Right. I, I mean, and I'm using the left here as kind of a synecdoche of sorts for kind of just the ruling class, kind of the uniparty and forced narrative regime in general here, which is. They like to talk a good game about free speech, but when you challenge their sacred cows and challenge their third rail tockets, they immediately kind of cower and, and say, oh, there's disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, you know, all the things that that Ben has been writing about for years and years now, the whole kind of MDM complex. But, um, you know, look, I, when it comes to RFK uh, in, in, in particular, I think the man is obviously deeply troubled. He said multiple ex-wives commit suicide. I mean, he's, he, he sounds like a lunatic sometimes in the past, I mean, but that doesn't mean that he's wrong. It doesn't mean that he is wrong when he speaks some very, very hard truths or at a bare minimum kind of broaches some very difficult discussions when it comes to the horrific COVID regime that this country's biomedical security complex has put into place for the past few years. Yeah, and on top of, of course, the vaccine and big pharma writ large, there's also, of course, the military industrial complex, the deep state chicanery as well, which is one of the reasons the left, or at least the ruling regime, which is dominated by leftists, doesn't want RFK Jr. being platformed because they don't want to have to address any of these things that they used to claim to be against and now are obviously manifestly for. Um, I would just say Hotez himself personifies kind of our class of credentialed faux experts. Uh, they may be actually intelligent and knowledgeable and such, but all the incentives don't call for intellectual honesty or rigor or critical thinking. They call to they call for falling in line and closing ranks and protecting whatever the sacred cows of the regime are. And that's how you have a time and a place where the likes of Joe Rogan is elevated to being like the journalist par excellence when he would probably never be in that role in any other circumstance in US history. And when an RFK Jr is considered such a devastating and trenchant critic precisely because we have this class of credentialed faux elites, uh, as Nicholas Nassim Taleb called, refers to them, intellectuals yet idiots, uh, who populate in all of these influential institutions. And so this, once again, shows the intellectual bankruptcy 
of those elites. And I think that's a positive thing and we should be shining a light on it. Um, so on that note, let's uh, let's open it up to parting shots. Well, I was going to say mine for last because mine is just totally off the beaten path here. But seeing the lack of fervor to enter the conversational fray, I guess I will hop in. Um, so I was in Armenia last week. Um, if you are in the audience and, uh, you know, probably not pertaining to this audience because this is a very kind of well-informed audience that follows these things closely. But if you are out there and kind of saying, you know, where is Armenia on a map? You're not alone. My brother actually asked me the, ex the exact same question. Um, so uh, Armenia is, is directly east of Turkey. They are directly west of Azerbaijan. Those two facts are deeply relevant because, of course, the Armenians were genocided by the Turks. Technically, I suppose they were the Ottoman Empire at the time during World War One from a period of roughly 1915 to 1922. And Armenia has been in an ongoing dispute with Azerbaijan since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Armenia and Azerbaijan are both former Soviet satellite states, and to this day, they, they are engaged in a fairly hot live-action fire conflict pertaining in particular to the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which is a disputed territory. The Armenians refer to this as Artsakh. So what was the purpose of, of this trip that I went on? Well, it was organized by a wonderful group called the, the Philos Project, which is headed by a gentleman by the name of Robert Nicholson. It was founded about nine years ago or so, if I recall. And the stated purpose is to try to get Christians, in particular American Christians, more involved in the, in the, the Near East, I think is the exact language of the Philos Project. And for the most part, that is that is roughly translated to various trips to Israel and Israel activism. It's a very kind of um, pro-Israel, philo-Semitic, uh, hence the term philos, um, group. But in recent years, the group has also taken an interest in Armenia because Armenia is the world's oldest continually existing Christian civilization. They declare Christianity the state religion in the year 301, which predates even when Rome became Christian. And obviously, if you can kind of go back to the history that I just mentioned, they were genocided by the Muslim Turks, a million, a million and a half Armenians a century ago. They're in this very difficult conflict with, with the Azeris pertaining to Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh currently has about 130,000 people, roughly 98% of whom, if I'm not mistaken, are Armenian Christians. But because the Azeris won the last conflict in 2020 in fairly decisive fashion, if you in Nagorno-Karabakh today, it's a very precarious situation, basically. Azerbaijan and Turkey have troops surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh on all sides. Uh, the dictator of Azerbaijan, Ilyev, is routinely threatening to kind of ethnically cleanse the territory. There's a there's literally one road called the Lachin Corridor that connects Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia proper. It is currently controlled by Russian, quote-unquote, peacemakers. Um, that's another interesting twist in the area. Armenia is in many ways, unfortunately, still a Russian satrapy. There are three Russian military bases there. I actually saw a Russian warplane fly over Yerevan doing barrel rolls when I walked out of the Armenian Genocide Museum when I was there. So the geopolitics of the region are just incredibly complicated stuff. Um, Armenia is basically forced to look to friends wherever they can. Um, unfortunately, that is cashed out mostly in terms of being aligned with Russia and Iran. The purpose of our trip as kind of a group of Americans, Christians, Jews, was to try to kind of meet with them and try to roughly kind of tease a possible realignment for them away from the Russia-Iran orbit towards more of kind of a, an Israel-United States-focused realignment. The reason this gets even doubly complicated 
is because uh, for pure realpolitik reasons, Israel chooses to side with Azerbaijan in that particular conflict. Basically, Israel gets 40% of their petroleum from Azerbaijan in exchange, they give them weapons. So it's a whole mess. Um, it's a really, really thorny, sticky situation. There really is kind of an impending humanitarian urgency to the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. I was there on the border. I saw it fairly firsthand. It, it's It's dangerous stuff. Um, but another kind of thing that I'm continuing to think about is kind of the interplay between kind of, you, you know, a lot of the messaging that I heard was very kind of moralistic, values-based, democracy, humanitarian. And a, a lot of that, while it resonates at a certain level, it, it is operating on a very different plane. I'm not going to say it's at loggerheads, but it's operating on a very different plane than some of the kind of more hard-headed, sober, realist arguments that we often make on this show and that I often make in my own personal kind of commentary as well. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to reconcile those two kind of competing sentiments. Um, but again, it was a really interesting trip. Uh, the food was excellent. And um, thank you to the Felix Project for having me out there. Um, I'll jump in here. Uh, so my my final thought for this week is updates on uh, the Daniel Penny uh, trial, impending trial now. We have a uh, indictment from a grand jury. It's actually procedurally very weird because there was initially like that Bragg had charged him and then they impaneled a grand jury and now the grand jury has charged him. Um, but in any case, uh, the, the charges are going to be second degree manslaughter um, and criminally negligent homicide. The first one, if he's convicted, uh, carries a sentence of up to 15 years in prison, the latter four years in prison. So he's looking at nearly 20 years in prison. Um, if he's convicted on all of these charges, um, he came out with a statement, I think a very good one, um, and which is notable in itself, because usually you don't hear a statement from a defendant like this. Uh, and most lawyers would advise against it, right? But I think it's, it's a... Um, it's an important reflection of, of the way that these these trials um, are really fought out in in the public the square of public opinion um and and that it's becoming increasingly impossible in these kinds of, of politically charged and racially charged incidents to uh, get a jury that hasn't been tainted by sort of the um the public discourse around it and and so i think it's actually um despite being quote unquote against advice that the typical advice um in, in a trial in a, in a legal context i think this is probably the direction that most of uh, defendants in this kind of position will go uh will take going forward so uh, penny came out and gave a statement said he was not trying to kill jordan neely um just to restrain him um he repeated some of the threats that neely had made um some of the very direct threats against penny himself and against other passengers in the car, including women and children. Um, and he, sa he said it has, quote, nothing to do with race, um, nothing about race, I think is what he said. So um, reiterating those those uh, those three points, um, we are going to see this this trial. It is going to capture the attention of the nation. I, I said last time um, that I'm actually somewhat optimistic, uh, more optimistic, at least than I normally than my normal pessimistic frame. Um, I, I do think that there are a lot of even New Yorkers, even you know very democratic New Yorkers who are fed up with the situation with criminally insane homeless people, particularly on the subway. Um, and I think it will be really interesting to see how this trial plays out. Of course, it's horrible that it's happening at all um, in, in a sane world. This, this would never be charged. Um, and, and Penny wouldn't have to defend himself against potentially 20 years in prison. Uh, but that being said, I'm moderately optimistic and perhaps you know events will prove me uh foolishly optimistic um but but I, I think that that he has a good shot to beat these charges um just one more thing to note there have been i think at this count either two or three 
I can't remember if it's three total or there's two more, um, or if it's now four total. There have been a total, I think. Oh, look. Anyway, it's either three or four, including Daniel Penny, of, of essentially self-defense um, uh, incidents in New York and in the subway. In other words, uh, where there have been um, serious bodily harm or death uh, caused to somebody and the, the assailant claims self-defense, right? Um, this is this is the inevitable consequence of, of completely allowing law and order to disintegrate. Um, you're going to have more of these incidents, not not fewer. You're going to make it actually paradoxically more dangerous for people like Jordan Neely, who should have been uh, locked up years and years ago, whether under uh, whether for his his myriad of crimes, including violent crimes, um, or simply because he was clearly mentally incompetent, one way or the other, um, allowing people like that uh, to roam the city free and get into these kinds of altercations um, is going to result in in more violence, not less. Um, including to them. So uh, this is this is the consequence. But um, we'll see how this trial proceeds. But I wanted to give that update. Something really depressing that Inez said is she thinks that the sort of public statement route uh, Daniel Penny took is going to be the advice. And I think rightfully so, I agree, in the future. I'm just hearing that in the future is so profoundly depressing because we all know there will be other Americans subjected to this. We all know that um, people like Jordan Neely will be subjected to the uh, undignified uh, spectacle of having their, their death politicized and blasted around the world and becoming fodder uh, for sort of cheap po political point scoring. And we all know the lack of compassion that New York City and its laws showed uh, towards Jordan Neely and will continue to show to Daniel Penny and his family and then Tragically, to Inez's point, every other person uh, who finds themselves in this situation. Super quickly, off-topic thing. Um, where, as we're taping this, there are some folks who are lost at sea. Um, they were on an expedition to view the Titanic, and I have a very uh, strange and, and sort of quick reaction to that, which is those tickets uh, cost somewhere around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I put that into an inflation calculator really quickly. Uh, the, the most expensive trip on the Titanic was around, or ticket on the Titanic was around $80,000. And um, just a sort of uh, question of, of decadence, I think maybe uh, ahead of us right now, that now in, in 2023, we have people paying $250,000 not to take a, a trip on the most beautiful luxury liner for passage from, from one place to another, with some sort of practicality attached to it. But um, uh, more than double that. Um, to, to see where other people died. And it's an incredibly strange thing that you, you have people paying actually twice as much money um, to see essentially a graveyard under sea. And I get the intrigue. Um, I think that's incredible and amazing um, that you would be able to have the technology to go under sea and see. I think we would all, you know, given the opportunity, be interested to see that, not for $250,000 though. Um, and so right now, just praying that they're found alive uh, praying for their safety, um, but it's a, a very bizarre, uh, I think, turn of events in a, a hundred years or so. Uh, hard to follow up on that, uh, but clearly a, a sign of our times and worthy of reflection. Uh, briefly on the Penny story, uh, I had the occasion of riding on the New York subway last week and uh, naturally entered a car where there was a clearly deranged, psychotic individual uh, seated in his own kind of section of the car, because as always in New York, everyone kind of moves away. 
Uh, there was food splayed out on the floor in front of him and such. And uh, of course, you know, looking around the car, my natural reaction, and I'm sure anyone who's cognizant of what's going on in the world is, if this person lashes out in a violent way, are you going to step up and defend someone who is innocent and harmless in the face of this madness, uh, knowing that you are risking basically the end of your life uh, under the law? And this is now the dilemma that every person who might step up and be chivalrous and defend their fellow citizens is now going to have to face and weigh in their own mind potentially uh, as these interactions continue to take place on the New York subway. And, and that really reflects, I think, the paradigm that progressivism pushes you to, which is do you do the right thing or do you get in line and submit to a diktat that essentially is going to lead to chaos in society and the innocent being harmed by uh, the violent. And this is the terrible situation that progressivism in New York has now led to. On an entirely different, but also uh, sombering and, and sobering kind of note, um, I would just return to the the Hunter Biden, um, you know, sweetheart deal that we're probably going to get some more details about going forward. Just to step back at a 30,000 foot level and say, uh, where this used to be sort of only known in part by leak, going back to 2016, it's now abundant. There's abundant evidence, and it's just brazen and right before our eyes that the DOJ and FBI are actively interfering in the 2024 election. Uh, and I would say we should work under the assumption that they're engaging in election fortification as well. Election fortification being the term that was used in the infamous uh, Molly Ball Time 2020 expose on the cabal, the conspiracy. Uh, that helped get Joe Biden elected the first time around. We are living in an election fortification world. Maybe it's always been this way, but I can't imagine it's been necessarily to the same extent, to the same degree, and so brazen and in your face as it is now. And I keep returning to this point. I think at some level, the brazenness is the point that the authorities want you to know that yes, they are openly engaged in total dual double standard, no standard two-tier justice system, uh, that they are doing everything they possibly can to ensure that voices they don't like are not heard and that the voices they do like are amplified to the nth degree. Uh, so we are, in, we are living under an election fortification regime and it's the national security apparatus, unfortunately, the most powerful of apparatuses that is the tip of the spear of it. So on that note, on behalf of Emily, Josh, and Inez, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.